Shalom and welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast from JewishBoston.com. I'm Miriam Anzavin, and I'm joined in this episode by my co-host, Dan Seligson. Dan and I have a lot in common, but one of our strongest shared passions is binge-watching TV. That's right, Miriam. The only thing I like better than tucking into an Israeli TV show is football season. But since it's summer, I'm going to sit my ass down and binge. I will tell you that once Netflix figured out I was Jewish, I started getting a ton of recommendations for high-quality TV from the homeland, not including Showtime's homeland, which completely lost the plot after season three. Go ahead and try and change my mind. I would never try to change your mind on that because I totally agree. But Baruch Hashem, Hashem. there are so many shows for us to watch. Israeli TV programs are everywhere. Fauda, When Heroes Fly, Hostages, Shtisel, Prisoners of War, and Judah, to name just a few. You really sound like you like all of those shows, for real. And you do. And then there are the American remakes of Israeli shows you can find in treatment on HBO. Charlie Golf 1 will be adapted by Paramount. There's also Traffic Light on Fox. The comedy Zero Motivation, about women serving in the IDF, is coming to the BBC, thanks to my fellow masshole, Amy Poehler. And the aforementioned Homeland was one of the first adapted shows, though I have to assume that the original didn't fall apart after senselessly killing off its most compelling character. The shows are in a variety of genres and suit so many interests. Big-budget thrillers such as Fauda are streamed by millions around the world, but so are the dynamics of an ultra-Orthodox family in Shtisel, filmed on what appears to be a few blocks in Jerusalem. Clearly, there's a ton to unpack and understand about the current state of Israeli TV. To delve into the history and trends, today we're talking to an expert. Dr. Shana Weiss is Associate Director of the Schusterman Center for Israel Studies at Brandeis University. Shana earned her PhD from New York University in Hebrew and Judaic Studies and completed fellowships in Israel. Her focus is on the phenomenon and impact of the Israeli television industry, as well as the politics of Israeli pop culture. Shana, welcome to the Vibe of the Tribe podcast. We are so thrilled to have you here on this episode talking to us all about Israeli television. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So let's start by um, hearing how you first got so interested in Israeli TV and how you landed here at Brandeis and this being your field of expertise. So it really started during my junior year abroad at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. I was learning Hebrew, and one of the teachers mentioned that Hebrew TV tends to be subtitled. So to watch it as much as possible, because the Hebrew that you see on screen will reinforce what you hear, even if you don't understand 100%. So I was like, great, this is my preferred way of learning languages. I had done similar things for Spanish in high school. So I started that and started watching what was on television. And that stayed through me as I worked on improving my Hebrew. And then when I chose this field of Israel studies writ large, I started noticing that there were really interesting things happening on Israeli television in terms of diversity and representation, uh, similar to what was happening on American television. And I started paying more and more attention. So I'm curious about the entire history of Israeli TV. It's a very young country, 71 years. TV has been around 
around the same amount of time. Um, the sophistication and budgets for these shows has increased. But do you, can you kind of take us through the, the early days to present of Israeli TV? Right. So what's really interesting is that the founders of Israel were not interested in Israeli television. They saw it as bourgeoisie, as decadent, as possibly ruining the socialist sort of ethos that they wanted Israel to be founded on. And they kept it out for a very long time. Um, Israel did not start broadcasting television until 1968. That is very late for the region, just comparatively um Egypt gets it around 1960, and I think Jordan is another year or two before, right? So at a time where there is television in other countries, right, Israel is actively keeping it out. There was another reason Israel was keeping out television, and that's because they were concerned that the waves of Mizrahi immigrants, right, Jews from Arab and Islamic lands, um, would not give up their cultures from where they came. And those television programs often were in Arabic languages and were extremely popular, especially in Egypt. Egypt was and still is to some extent the sort of cult, the seat of Arabic language culture in the film industry and in television. And there was a concern that if they weren't cut off, so to speak, they would never assimilate into the Ashkenazi Israeli culture. The Ashkenormative culture. We talk right? about this a lot on the podcast. So, so thank you for bringing that up. It's a huge part. Um, there's actually a phenomenal documentary um, called Friday Night, I think I can double check, about the tradition of Israeli television carrying um, Arabic cinema on Friday nights. And that was wow. something that families would get together and watch. There are also stories of um, illegal antennas picking up um, broadcast, especially from Egypt and especially from Jordan, which was really not that far. Um, and, you know, so the television starts in 1968 and there's actually really only one channel. There's an educational channel also, but really until the mid 80s. So again, this is really late. I was talking to a friend who does, um, who works on television in for the in what is now the former Soviet Union. And she was telling me countries like Czechoslovakia even had had three channels in the 70s. And Israel still does not have that. Uh, it eventually gets a, um, a second channel in the 80s and multi-channel cable in the 90s. So again, really late, but has what we call rapid penetration into the Israeli marketplace in terms of cable. Um, so that means there's a huge need for a lot more programming, a lot more hours to fill, and a lot more money coming into it. And that's when we start to see this boom of programming, of original programming. Because I should say, even when there was one channel or two channels, most it was still cheaper to import programming from abroad, with the exception of news and comedy programming, sort of like the Israeli version of Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Um, there's also a lot to say about what was imported, what was not imported, uh, which is a whole other discussion. Um, but now that there was more money, right, Israel is now a much richer country, more time and more opportunities, you start seeing a greater diversity. And then, of course, the the latest development is the sh what we call digital streaming platforms, things like Netflix, Amazon Prime, et cetera, which allows not just Israel's television, but other countries' television to be consumed around the world in a much easier way, in a much more accessible way. What was the first major global TV export from Israel? So the first one was a show called Biti Pool, or In Treatment. And the show is interesting because it features a therapist seeing different patients uh, five days a week, except on the last day she sees her own therapist. So it becomes this meta commentary 
It was interesting because it was five short episodes a week. It was a totally new format, a totally new way of thinking. The show was a huge hit in Israel, and it was bought by HBO and made uh, and picked up and made and they made an American version called In Treatment. What's interesting about the show is that it was basically copy and pasted, so to speak, in terms of plot. Um, and t- except for the IDF soldier, which they translated into an African-American veteran in the Iraq war. So to make that cultural difference. Uh, So it was hugely popular and I think showed to executives, first HBO was always more sort of creatively daring and more willing to take a chance, but that there was sort of something going on, not just in Israel, but in the foreign markets that they could pursue. And what was interesting about that show when I first saw it years ago when it premiered on HBO is in treatment is that it did have that daily, it it was a daily show, right? which was so unusual. And I I don't know if there's been any other shows that have kind of tried that formula, but it really was every day. And on the last day, uh, he saw his therapist. Um, It was such a unique show. And then later on, I discovered it was... uh, um, an adaptation of Israeli show. So that really was a remarkable one. It's almost a throwback to soaps in terms of the form. It's really interesting. I don't think there's been anything quite like that since. Yeah. I've noticed, uh, at least when I watch Netflix and it tells me what to watch next, that the embrace of Israeli TV and the choice of Israeli programming on TV seem to grow really rapidly, like maybe in the last two, three years. What's kind of the timeline for the explosion of Israeli TV on my Netflix feed and elsewhere? So I think it has to be taken into context is that there's an explosion of content generally. Streaming services allows us to consume content at a rate that no one could have imagined even 10 years ago. So people are blowing through series and they're always looking for more. So Netflix wants to keep you watching and wants to keep you interested. And so they're going to be looking for things to do. And while we don't know anything about the internal financial workings of Netflix, it's safe to assume that they have plenty of money. And oh, didn't they just announce they had like $12 billion for programming? Some ungodly right. amount exactly. of money. Billions, billions and billions of dollars. So one can assume, again, we don't know specifics. It's Netflix is a black box when it comes to numbers. But one can assume that it is not a huge risk for Netflix to buy programming from abroad. You know, if they have to pay a couple hundred thousand dollars or whatever it is, that's not a lot of money for them. So they are buying more and more, and they are looking more and more for places to go. And there are a couple of small countries, Israel is one of them, in which they are producing content um, that is really exciting to a global audience. You know, that's in distinction to places, let's say, like India, which are also producing great content, but are huge countries in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. And I think what's interesting also about Israel and is that American Jews working in Hollywood often serve as the points of connection. Um, they are themselves are interested in Israel through their own personal, you know, identities and whatnot. They visit Israel and their connections often serve, they serve as, I would say, informal brokers, right? That's what happened with Shtisel and that's what happened with some of the other programming as well. You had mentioned India as mm-hmm. another country where there's a lot of content. And I do notice this on Amazon Prime, less so on, on Netflix. Amazon Prime seems to have more Indi- content from India than than other places. Are there any other countries that are having the same success. Let me exclude Britain. 
Mm-hmm. Because they have their own Brit box, right? That's which a I different. I just signed up for, and it's fabulous. However, are there any other countries, sort of Israel size or close to Israel size, that are having this kind of impact on the American market? So I would say it's the Scandinavian countries: Denmark, Norway. They make some gloomy dramas. I got to tell you, exactly gloomy dramas. Um, Borgen is one that's cited. It's a great political thriller slash drama. Um, those I would say are the most analogous in terms of small countries with really strong cultural heritage that seem to be punching above their weight, at least representatively, in the global market. The Israeli shows that are being offered on Netflix and elsewhere, they, in my mind, are being understood in a certain way by American audiences. Do you think that they're received or understood in the same way in Israel, or are there cultural differences that affect how you perceive and how you watch these shows? There are definitely. So, of course, depends on the show and how people think of it. Um, So, let's just take for example, a show like Srugim, right, which is about the dating lives of religious Zionists in their late 20s and early 30s. Israelis will know who national religious, Dati Lumi, modern Orthodox, however you want to say it, they will have some sense of who they are. They might not know everything about them in terms of the internal workings of the community, but they'll know who they are. They might think of them as settlers or right-wing extremists, but they know. Americans are not going to know. If Americans know about Orthodox Jews, they actually know about Haredim, ultra-Orthodox Jews. They don't really know about modern Orthodox Jews. So for that, they're going to have a different experience when they watch the show. Uh, It's going to be newer. It's going to be somewhat quaint. And they're not going to have the same experience of – or I should say this. They're not going to have the same assumptions that these people are usually portrayed or stereotyped as right-wing extremists in the Israeli media. So they're not so they're not going to have that. Uh, so it means that they see things differently. Uh, they might the celibacy for example that most of the characters have on Srugim, they're going to see that often as sort of quaint or Jane Eyre-esque. You see a lot of Jane Eyre or Jane Austen uh, uh, comparisons. That's amazing. Um while the creators of Sru Game, well, I should say, I have spoken with them and they said, you know, some people in the community are completely celibate, some people are not. They chose to do something sort of in the middle, right? That was made as a discussion of realism. But it, the way the series works, and this is what I write about, is it becomes a revival of the marriage plot, so to speak, right? This yeah. is like a constant trope in literature, right? Can the marriage plot be revived? And one of my favorite critics, an American critic, said, uh, it's, it has the same appeal as a as Twilight, right? Vampires revive the marriage plot, right? It means something then again now. The same way Srugim has that sort of appeal because the relationship has the stakes that it doesn't in a sort of post-feminist, post-modern world. That is so fascinating. We at The Vibe of the Tribe, we're huge fans of all the shows that we've been watching. And again, we haven't seen all of them. There are mm-hmm. so many. Um, we freaked out through Fauda. We had a lot of feelings about when heroes fly. We've been a little confused but charmed by Stissel. Um, We've seen a number of themes in each, war, conflict, PTSD, but also family ties, the centrality of faith, communal trauma, and a kind of dark, morbid kind of sense of humor that I personally really enjoy. How are these themes particular to Israeli TV and the Israeli experience? So I think one of the most important communal themes is trauma. Yeah. I think, first of all, 
while there is a lot of war in these shows, war is almost a backdrop. Mm. For the most part, there are some exceptions. It's really about the the trauma after the fact. You don't really see the enemy, if you think about it. Again, with some exceptions, you know, there are obviously action scenes in Fauda. But if you think of a show when heroes fly, you don't see, you know, in their flashbacks to right. the battle scene, you don't see the other people. That's true. You see them kind of as you figures, s- but you don't see them as individual Exactly. People. So, and, and, and the trauma is communal. I love When Heroes Fly. I think one of the things that's really interesting about it is what brings the disparate characters together. Yeah. Um, You know, you have the religious one, you have the Mizrahi one, you have the wealthy Ashkenazi guy, right? What brings them together is their army experience, which obviously doesn't bring all Israelis together, right? Right. It's a certain kind of Israel together. But the trauma that they experience is communal, and they have to go through that communal trauma again, right, in a very different context, the forests in Latin America, to overcome their trauma. So... I think the way that trauma plays out is really fascinating and really different. I will also say Israel being a more conservative society or more traditionalist society, especially a growing population of Israelis, um, means that themes of religion and family play a role that they don't in American shows all Mm -hmm. the time. So what impact have these shows had on the general culture in Israel? You, You kind of spoke a little bit about how the perception of certain groups, you know, people have ideas in their mind about what those groups are or what their lives are like. Um, for example, has Fauda changed anything about the way uh, Palestinians and Israelis view each other or, you know, the average viewers see Orthodox communities differently because of shtisel or reevaluate the perceptions of people with autism if they watch um, Yellow Peppers or On the Spectrum? Um, how does that play out in general society as like a change, a cultural change. So there's a whole school of social science research that tries to figure out exactly how exposure to different kinds of people in television and film, what effect that has on people's perceptions. And, you know, it, and it doesn't, no one's saying that this is going to, you know, create peace instantly, but the general trend of this literature is that it does help to some extent. Is it a substitute for other things? No. But um, but when you see other people's stories and you encounter other people's stories and they in a way that is made meaningful for you, you tend to have more sympathy for that person. I I will say with Fauda, there are debates. Not everyone thinks that it is a particularly fair or helpful p- portrayal of Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly with other shows. Uh, but it is interesting to see this diversification on the screen and what it means. Is there a movement of Israeli stars going to American markets once they've achieved success in Israeli TV? Like I know Tomer Capone just joined The Boys, um, a comic book adaptation that I'm kind of excited for. I believe it's on FX. So he's um, an Israeli star, you know, moving to an American market. Are we seeing any other parallels like that? Definitely. I mean, that's the dream, right? Yeah. Like the dream would be. Can we get Michael Aloni in here? Yeah, right. I was going to say Please. you have you. You're rooting for one in particular. My future husband. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so it's funny. There was even uh, one of my favorite shows, Ish Chashuv Maod, a very important person, which is a semi-fictitious story about Yehuda Levy, mm-hmm. um, a very popular Israeli actor as he ages and sort of figures out what he's doing with his life. The second season is all about him trying to make it in America. <laughs> he actually moves to L.A. Um, he gets bit parts. 
you know, tries to deal with the fact that he's a big deal in Israel. No one really cares about him in Hollywood. So it's definitely a thing. And it's not just a thing because of economics. It's also national pride. Look mm-hmm. at how Israelis think about Gal Gadot. Right? I know. Um, it's, it becomes she made it. She can do it. Right. So it's definitely an obsession um, the same way it is when an Israeli company makes an exit. Right. Right. Uh, And one more thing I actually wanted to mention about the American audiences or American adaptations is that producers have told me that there's something called the Fauda effect, which is that when they sell shows to networks in Israel, they are asked, how will this translate abroad? Because Israel is a small country and when you look at the different populations, not all of them are watching television. First of all, Israeli Palestinians tend to watch Arabic language programming. So there's knocks out 20% of the population. The Russian speaking community tends to watch in their own um, language, although that's changing a bit as this community um, ages and integrates more, but that's still a significant percentage. Ultra Orthodox Jews theoretically don't watch television. A lot of them do it illegally or, you know, through internet streaming, but it doesn't count in the same way, right? So you're dealing with a really smart market and the money is really to be made abroad. So that, of course, obviously affects what shows are made and how producers and creators think about their shows, right? Uh, There was concern or there is concern that shows about like terrorists and spies and whatever are going to consume Mm. the Israeli market, um, but I do think the success of shows like Shtisel and Sergeim show that there's still a space for other sort of few more human interest stories as well. So the worst nightmares of Israel's founders and television have not been realized? <laughs> I mean, or I, kind of were they? I, you know, I think they may have been right. If we think about bourgeoisie society, we think about middle class values. If we think about people having voices that they particularly weren't so fond of, Mizrahi Jews, religious Jews, Israeli Arabs. You know, it is far from a perfect society, but we see those voices more and more. Uh, I do think that they were wrong in that they did not think TV could have propaganda value the way same way movies do. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that Israel does this per se. I don't think that they do, but I don't think they understood the power of television as a communal experience. I'm curious about cultural boycotts and the BDS movement, um, boycotts, divestment and sanction movement. And whether it's had any impact on the popularity of or, I guess, distribution of Israeli TV shows beyond the American market, are networks ever, you know, having second thoughts about adapting or buying an Israeli show for audiences around the world? So I don't think so. Again, we know nothing about numbers. Um, The people who make these shows sign NDAs. I know this because I asked questions about what it was like and they got very nervous and wouldn't talk about it, which I understand. They don't want to be sued. Uh, So we don't know. Do I think they do? Not particularly, especially not in America. Where I do think it has some sort of issue, and this is related but not exactly the same, is that we have seen pushback against film festivals, especially in Europe, um, in which there has been some sort of cultural pushback. You know, are individual people watching who may support a cultural boycott of Israel but want to see Fauda? Probably. Does that make them hypocrites? I don't think so. Right? It just means that people live more complicated lives. Um, But I don't think the cultural boycott has – the influence that it does or that its supporters would like it to have. 
I just started watching Judah on Hulu about a Jewish-Israeli vampire, um, and I initially was very like challenged by this, and I didn't know if I want. I just start, you know, I watched the the pilot episode, and I was like, I don't know if I'm into this. But then uh, you actually told me to stick with it, and you were right. Um, so I've, I'm, you know, a little bit further in, and I'm actually loving it. It is crazy and weird, but in an enjoyable way. What are some brand new Israeli shows that are kind of just emerging onto the market, or maybe they're not new to Israel, but new to America, um, that you are really excited to have people experience? So I'm so glad you got into Judah. I recommend it to everyone. It is bizarre and campy, so but you just got to roll with it. Uh, shows that I'm really excited about, uh, Shababnikim, which, I feel, um, which had some play in film festivals. It's a show about four ultra-Orthodox yeshiva guys uh, sort of entourage style. Oh my God. As they make their way around Jerusalem. Why I like it is a couple of reasons. One is that there's a, one of the sisters of one of the main characters is a secret Torah scholar um, and makes jokes about why you guys being lame. I almost like passed out when oh she made that joke. So that's a great plot line, but also because it shows ultra Orthodox Jews as funny. Yes. And thank you. A lot, there's a lot of great cinema and television now about Haredi Jews, about ultra-Orthodox Jews, but it tends to be very dour. It tends to have like sepia tones if you pay attention to the coloring and the Like filters. in the old world. And, it, you know, they don't talk a lot. They're like, shalom, hello, you know. So this show, there's this great, you know, in the first five minutes of Shabab Nikim and in, in the first episode, they're playing, so they're playing actually football, American football, with guys in Gan soccer, which is amazing for anyone who spent time in Jerusalem. Um, but in their conversations afterward, one of the characters says, we're the story now. We're what matters now. So as Israel is changing and demographically, we're going to see those shifts. And Shabab Nikim, I think, is really revolutionary and portraying these guys as funny, as good looking. They're all huge heartthrobs and as well dressed. There's even a scene where um, Yehuda Levy, the same person I mentioned earlier, he has a cameo where he runs into them, into a Brooks Brothers. There are no Brooks Brothers in Israel, but okay, <laughs> there are in the show. And he says, I love you guys. I love how you dress. Regular Israelis, they don't care anymore, but for you, style is important. You know, you still care <laughs> about the European suits. And whoever spent time in sort of middle, upper class Haredi neighborhoods will know that these people are well-dressed. Oh, yeah. Suits are very important. Incredibly exactly. well-dressed. Incredibly yeah. well-dressed. hats and the suits. Hats and suits, beautiful Italian suits, beautiful leather um, shoes, etc. So that's one show. Another show that I love that I heard it's getting picked up in America, although I'm not sure, is a show called Muna about a Israeli-Palestinian woman who is a photographer whose art is chosen to represent Israel in an international European competition. It is loosely based on Mira Awad's story, mm. who is a singer who represented Israel in Eurovision. They use that as a inspiration. She's one of the writers and creators. And seeing the show, which is a phenomenal portrayal of young Israeli Palestinians and the issues that they go through and the conflicting identities, I think is really, really important. And those are the two of the shows I'm really excited about. Well, Dan and I clearly have a lot of binging to do to get to your level. So we're going to get right on that. I'm going to go home right now and watch the rest of Judah. I think Judah. I need to get Hulu, right? <laughs> yes, you do. Okay. I got Hulu just, just for this purpose. That's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Thank you. So, Shana, thank you so much for joining us today on The Vibe of the Tribe and talking about these fascinating um, TV issues. We love TV, and thank you just so much for sharing your expertise. Thank you for having me. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. 
Follow us at Jewish Boston on social media and subscribe to the Vibe of the Tribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also email us at podcast at jewishboston.com with your comments, feedback, and ideas for future topics and guests. Thanks, as always, to our editor, Jesse, and our composer, Ryan. And to Michael Aloni, if you're listening, please DM me. He could also use the email, right? Or you could email me. Just Either is the email. Fine. He could do that. You can totally email me, Michael. Yeah, can, I mean, or call, whatever. Call, Just text. The main, the main number. Whatever. The main number. Send me like a... To Jewish Boston during regular business hours. Yeah, a fax. I would accept a fax. Okay, Michael, you're a handsome man. We know it. I love you. Did we do it?